The Tom Woods Show, episode 1791. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Well, you may know, either from my email newsletter or from some other source, that we lost Walter Williams this week. He was the great economist, professor, public speaker, syndicated columnist, author, just all around amazing person, such a persuasive person. He had such influence on so many people, and the topics he discussed almost couldn't have been more controversial, and yet he never backed down, he never compromised. He's a great example for all of us, and joining me to pay tribute to him and his ideas today is Tom DiLorenzo, who was a colleague of uh, Professor Williams for some time, knew him for probably close to 40 years. Tom himself is recently retired as a professor of economics at Loyola University in Maryland, and he's the author of numerous books, including How Capitalism Saved America and some books on Lincoln that I'm sure will come up in the course of the conversation because they're related to uh, Walter Williams. Tom, welcome back. Great to be with you, Tom, once again. I feel like I should be saying what people say at a funeral. I'm sorry we have to meet under these circumstances, but uh, I thought Given the influence Walter Williams had on me, I read his columns when I was in high school. Same with Soul and, uh, you know, maybe one or two other columnists. But really, Soul and Williams were real regulars for me. And I got to meet him briefly, and I've had him on the show a couple times. But I really, really admired and, and, and respected him. So I was very sad to learn he had died. And I know you worked closely with him, too. Yeah. So let's talk about that. How did you get to know him? Well, I, I arrived at uh, George Mason University in 1981 as a young assistant professor. I had just finished my PhD at Virginia Polytechnic Institute. Uh, they changed the name to Virginia Tech once they got a good football team, but it was VPI back in those days. And Walter got there a year before me, and it was a relatively small department, much smaller than, than it is now. And so we all knew each other very well, and his office was maybe uh, – five or six paces from my office. And uh, Walter and I both taught, we were the two faculty members of George Mason at the time who taught the big sections of 300 or more uh, students and principles of economics. And so uh, I got to know him uh, originally by, by talking about all those things. And uh, just, you know, we, we, their office configuration was a suite. And so you went through these the big double doors and then we all had our little sort of catacomb there, the economics department. And so we're all very close, and, and we saw each other a lot. And uh, that's how I first got to know Walter. And just over the years, uh, you know, many programs that were sponsored by the Institute for Humane Studies at GMU that Walter participated in. And, uh, and so that's how I got to know him up to the present day, you know, and I got him to write the foreword to my book, The Real Lincoln, uh, and, you know, in 2003. And I told the story in the obituary that I wrote on lourockwell.com about how shortly after that book was published, I get a phone call at seven o'clock in the morning. The phone rings and it's Walter. And he says, Rush Limbaugh is sick and I'm hosting the show today. Would you like to come on? And it's, it's like it's like asking me, would you like to win the lottery today? <laughs> so right. I did. And so uh, and uh, as a result of that, I, we spent a whole hour on Rush Limbaugh's audience, with Rush Limbaugh's audience, promoting my book, basically. And my sales ranking went to number two on the next, uh, by, the, by the evening. 
And and by the way, that's sales rank not just for nonfiction titles, which would be no, impressive all books. enough. But yeah. So, yeah, all books. And remember that since nobody reads nonfiction, for a nonfiction title to be number two yeah. is unbelievable. Yeah the, yeah, the only book that outsold me on that day was Montel Williams's Diet and Exercise book. Of course, he, he had an unfair advantage. He had his own television show at the time to promote <laughs> his book, and I did not. I love that you, all these years later, you remember the book that beat you out. I sure would. Yeah, that's right. I remember uh, words that I got struck out in spelling bees on to this yeah. day. So I, I, don't, I don't let go very easily. But that's an amazing result. And what, what an extraordinary thing he did for you. Yeah, he sure did. Walter was a, a very generous man. Uh, Tom Sowell, in his obituary that he wrote on townhall.com today, mentioned that. And Walter was uh, very charitable, gave away, apparently gave away a lot of money and supported a lot of causes that were that were close to him. And he was that way with people, too. And in fact, I after uh, this happened, I sent him a $100 bottle of wine because I knew Walter Williams was a wine connoisseur and a cheese connoisseur for that matter. And uh, he did me another favor uh, a couple years later like that. And I sent him another bottle of wine and he was kind of offended by it. He thought, you know, I'm doing my friend a favor. You don't need to send me any wine or anything like that for that. And so that's the kind of person he was. Let's talk about uh, one of his works. He wrote numerous books. I have a signed copy of his book, The State Against Black. Somebody just wrote to me through my website to say they had read what I wrote about Walter Williams in my email newsletter, and I mentioned that book, and they said that the the cheapest they can get it on Amazon now is for $1,000. Yeah. And, and so it was, did I know how he could get one? I thought, well, you ain't getting my signed copy, that's for darn sure. But what I did have him on to talk about his book, Race and Economics, uh, How Much Can Be Blamed on Discrimination. And you told me just, I just found this out, that you actually used that in a classroom setting. Yeah, I did. I, I taught an undergraduate class called Law and Economics. And I used four or five different books and, and a lot of uh, internet articles on it. And, uh, and since race is such a big issue, uh, you know, it's uh, pounded into the brains of college students from the left, you know, from birth almost, I thought uh, this would be a good book to use in my law and economics class because it is all about the effects of laws and regulations on uh, and how laws and various laws and regulations have economic effects that have uh, racial consequences, not necessarily racist, but racial and affect, affect black people differently than not, uh, white people. And, uh, and so uh, I use that as a textbook, one of the textbooks in my undergraduate law and economics class. And the students loved it. Uh, they, these were economics students, and they had heard all the other arguments. And the basic uh, line by the, by the left is that because of the legacy and slavery and Jim Crow and so forth, that it's hopeless. Black people can never make it on their own. They need help by white leftists uh, to, to survive in American society. And, and, and Walter's research, and a lot of other too, Sowell and others, flies in the face of that by, uh, and one thing that this book does is to point out that uh, of the tremendous success that uh, black people made after slavery on their own through entrepreneurship. And it has always been the state that has interfered with their progress through the occupational licensing regulation, minimum wage laws, the Davis-Bacon Act, and all sorts of things that even if they're not motivated by racism, they have racial effects and that they create barriers to entry to occupations for uh, primarily, disproportionately, 
for black people have historically in the United States and elsewhere. And so, and the students, these economic students uh, like that because it adds a, a dose of uh, elementary economic reasoning to understand these issues rather than just the uh, never ending moralizing that they get from their left wing professors. What seems to happen is that in the US in recent decades, state policies that harm blacks are not, you know, they're not described that way. It's not obvious. There's not a, an act for the purpose of keeping black people down. But there, as you say, there are things that have that effect. Whereas if some so-called civil rights leader comes along and says, look, I got 50 new black jobs in my district. Well, that's something everybody can see. But there are a lot of ways in which jobs that might have been created for blacks go uncreated or blacks can't get them but they're not earmarked in some way that would make it obvious that this is what has happened. So it's a case of what is seen and what is not seen. So, for example, what what is the Davis-Bacon Act and how does that have any effect on any of this? That's a good example. Walter Williams writes about that in his book, Race and Economics. Uh, And the Davis-Bacon Act uh, was enacted in one of these 1930s eras laws. And there are state Davis-Bacon Acts also at the state level. And it says that any, any building that goes on that involves uh, government money. And the federal Davis-Bacon Act means that there's a federal grant involved, even if the grant is only 1% of the total cost of a some kind of a, a commercial development, let's say, or a road or something like that, then you have to pay what are called Davis-Bacon wages, which are also called prevailing wages, which is an, a euphemism for the union wage, the union scale, which is uh, often higher than the, uh, the wage that would, uh, say, some upstart contractor would charge. And that the Davis-Bacon Act has also had, always had a discriminatory effect toward blacks uh, because, uh, you know, back in the, in the 1930s when these types of laws were originated, there were a lot of uh, uh, black people who came from the South, who, uh, which was uh, pretty much devastated by the, uh, the Roosevelt administration and its, and its agricultural programs, paying farmers not to raise raise crops and uh, raise cattle and things like that. And so the sharecroppers disappeared, basically, and there was a flood of mostly black sharecroppers to the Midwest and the North in general looking for manufacturing jobs. So what the Davis-Bacon did is that all these people who were coming looking for jobs, you might have had a, a black man who was a hard worker and is in good shape, he's in physical condition, he's healthy, and he's willing to work a labor job for, say, $3 an hour, but the union scale job is $5 an hour, well, the blacks started taking these jobs on the free market. And the unions wanted to stop this. And so one tool that they used was the Davis-Bacon Act, because somebody who, who does not have quite the experience as a, you know, as a union worker who was trained as an apprentice and who has 15 or 20 years of experience well, on that day, he was worth 5 or $6 an hour to employers, you know, more than that. But the, uh, the black guy from Mississippi who shows up in Chicago, who has maybe six months experience, he can do the job, but he, and he's, he's not quite as good as the, the other guys with 15 years experience, but he can do it for three bucks an hour. And so uh, that effectively priced the black people out of, out, of a, out of a job. And that was effectively, you know, Tom... Some years ago, the the Maryland Chamber of Commerce invited me to testify at a hearing of the state assembly on this topic. And it was right after the uh, Baltimore Ravens Stadium had been built. 
And in the room, in the hearing room, were all these uh, black businessmen who were contractors. They were they had small plumbing companies, small electric company with a few electricians, and they had all basically worked for some big company and then went off on their own and formed their own company. And they were shut out by the Davis-Bacon Act, the state Davis-Bacon Act. They, they, they had very little work building this gigantic stadium, which had, you know, work galore for plumbers and electricians and bricklayers and all that. And the uh, the Maryland State Assembly, of course, was which was, was then, as it is now, totally in the pockets of the labor unions in the state, absolutely refused to listen to the logic of how the, the state Davis-Bacon Act had kept these, uh, these black entrepreneurs out of the market. And so what they did instead, at the end of the hearing, they promised to impose quotas next time. They said, the next time we have a big building project like this that involves state money, we'll make sure 30% of the uh, contracts go to black uh, companies, you know, you know, whether they, they deserve it or not, and, you know, on merits. And so these black businessmen that were in the in the room with me, they were saying we want to be judged by merit. You know, we we do good work, and we charge a little less than the unionized companies, and that's how we want to compete. But the Maryland State Assembly did not want to hear it because they didn't want to antagonize their labor union patrons, which had kept these black men out of work uh, for several years in the state of Maryland. I'm pretty sure in Professor Williams's book. Uh... South Africa's War on Capitalism or War Against Capitalism, which was a book on apartheid. It's been a long time since I've looked at that, but there must have been treatment of labor unions there. And that's one of these issues that's difficult for progressives who, remember when progressives used to pretend to like the working class? To deal with the fact that their beloved unions may have had the effect, intended or otherwise, I think it was intended, to keep non-whites out. It certainly was under apartheid. Uh, uh, yeah, Walter Williams gives chapter and verse about that in his book, uh, South Africa's War Against Capitalism. And things like the Davis-Bacon Act and the Minimum Wage Act, they were, they were very clear about it. And Walter quoted chapter and verse of the, the labor unions in South Africa. And by the way, their, their slogan in the early 20th century, the labor unions of South Africa, the slogan to support apartheid, was sort of a, taken from the Communist Manifesto. It was uh, workers of the world unite, keep South Africa white. That was the union slogan. And the way in which uh, they kept South Africa white, so-called, at least the, the labor force, was such things as the Davis-Bacon Act, which they knew would would uh, be harmful to black workers who were trying to compete for, for labor jobs with white workers by offering to work for a lower wage. Uh, you know, they have less experience uh, they couldn't command as high wage. And also the minimum wage law. They were very explicit about the minimum wage law being a way to keep these workers out because they understood that these these guys were not quite as experienced as the white unionized workers. They did not have the benefit of, say, a, a two-year apprenticeship program to become an electrician, although they, you know, they, they might have had, a, you know, known a trade like that. But they weren't quite as productive, and so therefore they couldn't command quite the, the wage. And they fully understood that they could uh, price these people out of a job with minimum wage laws and, uh, and the Davis-Bacon Act, which is sort of a kind of a minimum wage law. And, and another anecdote I could, uh, story I could tell you, Tom, is uh, years ago when I taught at George Mason, I had a student, Tom Rostisi, who's, who's an old man now like me, and who I think still teaches at George Mason himself now. But he was an undergraduate student in one of my classes, my class in public choice. And he wrote a term paper on the, the 
the political economy of the minimum wage law, and he read through the congressional record of the 1930s of the debates over the federal minimum wage law here. And back then, uh, he has all these quotes in his paper that he wrote of, uh, from the congressional record, businessmen, not just businessmen, but members of Congress uh, representing manufacturing areas of the country, coming right out and saying, well, we've got to do something about all these black workers coming out and underpricing our good high-paid union men. And we think the minimum wage will do the trick. We'll do that. And, and I helped Tom uh, rewrite this. And this is, this is back in the 1980s, I think 1985. And it was published in the Cato Journal. So if you if you go on on the the Cato, in fact, I've got it right now. I'm looking right at. It. I'll I'll post it on the show notes page. Yeah, and so and he has chapter and verse. So it was identical to what happened in South Africa, uh, South Africa, as documented by Walter's book, South Africa's War Against Capitalism. The politicians weren't quite as uh, sleazy and sneaky in the 1930s. Apparently, they came right out and said these things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. I knew about that, and I had seen a couple of those quotations, but until you mentioned it just now, I hadn't known there was a full-blown paper on it. So, yeah, that, um, was, that was Tom Rostisi's paper from my undergraduate public choice course in 1985. I helped him rewrite it, and we sent it to the Jim Dorn at the Cato Journal, and he published it in the Cato Journal. And to this day, it is still an excellent analysis of the politics of the adoption of the minimum wage and how it was intended. It wasn't just a a law of unintended consequences that that it uh, it has deprived uh, millions of young black teenagers of jobs. The minimum wage law that was always the intent in the minds of a lot of people. And another part of the intent of that was uh, there's sort of a north south division. The South after the Civil War, you know, it took the South uh, an entire century to catch up to the North uh, to where it was in terms of the the relationship between North and South economically. And so uh, being relatively impoverished, a lot of Southern workers, not just Blacks, but everybody, you know, they they weren't as skilled and experienced uh, in the manufacturing jobs uh, that were paying better. And so they, they too, white people and Black people, were were offering to work for a little less because they were less experienced. And and Tom Rostisi also uh, documents in that article uh, sort of a North-South division that uh, manufacturers from the Northern states would say things like, well, we've got this steel being manufactured in Birmingham now, and it underprices our steel. It's cheaper than our steel up here in uh, Pennsylvania. We've got to do something about this. We've got to increase the wages of those people down in Alabama making the steel so that their steel would become more expensive. And of course, that means that the products made of steel, like automobiles, also become more expensive. But it's all uh, to benefit the labor unions and not just the labor unions, but the corporations who are unionized, and, and being unionized, of course, gave them a competitive disadvantage compared to the Southern companies that were finally beginning to be competitive in the 1930s and 1940s, you know, uh, after the Civil War. I want to make sure everybody knows what the show notes page is. So this is episode 1791. So at tomwoods.com slash 1791, that's where you can find this article that we've been talking about uh, just now. And then, of course, the books that we've been talking about, including Tom's book, The Real Lincoln, which you should read. And uh, I'll also link you to Tom's most recent book, which is, is it The Problem with Lincoln? Problem with Lincoln, yes. Yeah, okay, because we did an episode on that too. Hey, everybody, just a quick thanks to our sponsor, Policy Genius. This sure is a time of year when you find yourself lightening your wallet and running around like a crazy person. 
Well, if you need life insurance, but you don't want to deal with the hassle or the expense, try Policy Genius. Policy Genius combines a cutting edge insurance marketplace with help from licensed experts to save you time and money. You could save 50% or more by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance. Super simple, just head to policygenius.com and in minutes you'll be working out how much coverage you need and comparing quotes from top insurers to find your best price. You know you need to be doing this, by the way. You know Old Woods is right about this. And it's so simple because then Policy Genius compares policies starting at as little as a dollar a day. And you might even be eligible to skip the in-person medical exam. And then the Policy Genius team handles all the paperwork and red tape, and they've earned a five-star rating over 1,600 reviews on Trustpilot and Google. So if you have loved ones who depend on your income, don't go into 2021 without life insurance. Go to policygenius.com and get started. You can save 50% or more by comparing quotes and start the new year with one less thing to worry about. Policy genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. So looking back at uh, the race and economics book by Williams, I see some familiar themes, themes that I would also see in, in Milton Friedman and in Williams's earlier work, for example, about how occupational licensing can hurt people and their ways of excluding blacks from certain trades or making their lives difficult there. And what's particularly insidious about that is that these things are made to sound fairly benign, right? They're just enacted for the sake of ensuring the public good and that everybody is getting access to quality goods and services. And I don't think people stop to think about the consequences of that. And there's no black leader who ever got in trouble for not working to repeal these things because people are simply unaware of the racial impact of them. Yeah, you know, um, the late Milton Friedman was a, he was a proponent of drug legalization and, uh, and he was a big critic of the war on drugs. And uh, for many, many years, he wrote a lot about it, spoke a lot about it. And he distinguished between a, a, a racial effect and a racist effect of uh, prohibition, to get off the topic just a little bit. And the racial effect was that uh, the enforcement of the drug laws disproportionately harms young black men. I mean, it's, it's obvious to everybody who pays any attention to it. And that doesn't mean the people who uh, wrote these laws uh, you know, connived and said, ha, 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 let's, let's uh, devise a law that will put all these young black guys in jail. No, it's had a racial effect. And the occupational licensing laws, some of them have a, the same kind of effect, a racial effect, even if, even if they weren't advocated by people who were racist and wanted to harm them. Although some were, some obviously were. Walter Depp documented that the apartheid laws also used occupational licensing as a way to keep black people uh, from competing for the uh, jobs held by white union members. So that was a racist effect there. And there have been examples here. Walter, in his book, gives you another example of this, of uh, Roosevelt's uh, National Recovery Act, which put price supports on just about everything, including, uh, and then the end of the, mid, the minimum wage law came later. But Walter documents how you know, it was called the NRA, National Recovery Administration. And Walter documents how, at the time, it was known in the black community as the, quote, Negro Removal Act, because uh, unions, unions were empowered by the Roosevelt administration, you know, from the, almost from the beginning. And the unions were, were very racist. And, and, they, and so they, they kept uh, their, their, newly, their new powers that were given them, to them by the government, enabled them to... Uh, keep black workers out of getting, getting good union jobs. You know, Tom, my, my father was a unionized iron worker. And uh, this is, you know, in the, in the mid 20th century, uh, you know, he, he retired in the 1970s. 
But uh, I can remember as a teenager that in Western Pennsylvania, where I grew up in Eastern Ohio, it was it was virtually impossible for a black man to get one of these better paying skilled labor jobs like iron worker till the 1970s. And that was all the work of labor unions. Labor unions had such a hold on who got to have a job. And uh, that has changed now. It's a very different world today. But, uh, but for decades and decades, that was the world we lived in. And so, uh, and so Walter documents that in his book, Race and Economics, about how it was called. There were a lot of names for it. One of them was the Negro Removal Act, uh, Roosevelt's NRA. I want to share something that I'm fond of that shows his, I don't know, whimsical side, let's say, but at the same time, you can tell there's a serious issue involved. He was as opposed to political correctness as anyone. And he wrote this. Well, first of all, did you ever see his proclamation of amnesty and pardon? Oh, yes. I, I thought of concluding that in my obituary, but I didn't. But I decided it was a little too long. I might still put it up on uh, lourockwell.com. Okay, all right. I'm going to read wonderful. it. Uh, yeah, yeah okay. I quoted from it in my own little tribute to him yesterday. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, it's, it's Walter's proclamation of amnesty and pardon granted to all persons of European descent because he as a black man can can give amnesty. So he says, whereas Europeans kept my forebears in bondage some three centuries toiling without pay, whereas Europeans ignored the human rights pledges of the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution, whereas the Emancipation Proclamation, the 13th and 14th Amendments meant little more than empty words. Therefore, Americans of European ancestry are guilty of great crimes against my answers, my ancestors and their progeny. But... In the recognition Europeans themselves have been victims of various and sundry human rights violations, to wit the Norman Conquest, the Irish Potato Famine, decline of the Habsburg Dynasty, Napoleonic and Tsarist adventurism, and gratuitous insults and speculations about the intelligence of Europeans of Polish descent, I, Walter E. Williams, do declare full and general amnesty and pardon to all persons of European ancestry for both their own grievances and those of their forebears against my people. Therefore, from this day forward, Americans of European ancestry can stand straight and proud, knowing they are without guilt, and thus obliged not to act like damn fools in their relationships with Americans of African ancestry. Signed, Walter E. Williams, gracious and generous grantor. (laughs) (laughs) That that is uh, vintage Walter Williams. Very, very eloquent, too, wasn't it? Absolutely incredible. Now, I don't, I, mm-hmm. I don't know offhand how long he wrote that newspaper column, but it sure seems like forever. He was right. When I got to George Mason University in 1981, Walter Williams was already a nationally syndicated columnist. So at least 40 years, Walter wrote that column. And, uh, and in my obituary, I mentioned, uh, Tom, that uh, one of the things that got me interested in economics in the first place is when I was a freshman in college, the uh, first economics course I took, Econ 101, the professor used a standard textbook and a book of readings by Milton Friedman called An Economist's Protest. And Friedman was a great, a, a very nice, popular writer, a good thinker. You know, he could, he could explain things. There were, you know, essays about uh, the case against the military conscription and the the case for privatizing the post office and thing like things like that, and I thought, well, this is fun. This you know, economics is a really a fun thing to study. If this is what it's about, and, and, it, and it was, and it was very much in the in the vein of uh, Friedrich Bastiat, you know, the, the great uh, 18th century French uh, economist. And Walter, uh, I think of what Walter has done with his columns 
is uh, a thousand times more than what Milton Friedman ever did in terms of popular writing. And he and Tom Sowell, you know, for decades and decades, all these wonderful columns, and many of them have been uh, made up into whole books. And so I I ended my obituary in in saying that I I would like to think that there are thousands of young people who, like me when I was young, ran and stumbled across this. And and that sort of ignited an interest in in, in causing them to pursue this line of educating themselves. And I'm pretty sure I know that has had effect on Walter. Walter's readers. I've had lots of uh, emails today in response to my obituary and on lewrockwell.com from all kinds of people who never met Walter, you know, were never within a thousand miles of him or anything like that, but they've been reading him for decades and, they, and they've, they've been telling me their stories of so much that they learned. And there's no way to measure that, but he has, but he, uh, he has had a, a tremendous impact uh, on America in a positive way, along with Tom Sowell, his best friend. Well, let me point out, uh, maybe, I don't know if you know this or not, but our friend Bob Murphy, who's been extremely prolific as an economist, credits in part Walter Williams for getting him interested in economics. So we really, owe, yeah. in some ways, we owe Bob Murphy to Walter Williams. Yeah, yeah. That's well, a big that's, deal. Uh, yeah, I hope, um, I, hope, I hope that doesn't end up on Walter's gravestone, but uh, that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so... So we've got all that. I'm going to put also the, I had him on my show twice, and then I went back into the archive. I I used to fill in when Peter Schiff had a terrestrial radio show. I used to fill in for him, Mm -hmm. and I interviewed Walter Williams on that, and I made that later on into an episode of my show. So I got three appearances where the two of us had a conversation. So I'll link to those all on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1791. We'll also have the books we've been talking about, that article we mentioned, and, uh, Tom's The Real Lincoln book and also his most recent The Problem with Lincoln. You should read them all. You're not going to, there's not one of these books where you're going to say, I really regret reading them. Except maybe if you if you spend $1,000 for the state against blacks, you may have buyer's remorse just because of the price tag. But try and find that at your local library or get it through interlibrary loan or something. But uh, Tom, I appreciate you doing this at the last minute, but I, I wanted to to do this while uh, it's still in every on everybody's minds and uh, because I felt that he deserves to have some kind of tribute on this program. So thanks for doing it. My pleasure. And I agree completely. He certainly deserves a tribute. And uh, thanks for doing it, Tom. Uh, Those of us who are good friends of Walter really appreciate that you have done this. All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. Monday, I have, I think, a very special guest coming up in connection with the virus, a pretty well-known name. He's a tremendous person. You're going to love hearing from him. So look forward to that on Monday, and thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.